You can make all things up in your mind, but you can't understand things if they're not true. This is what Newton is saying. And then he goes on and says, for if the things are false, the comprehension of them is not understanding. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Father in heaven, as we consider the works of your hands, we understand the eternal nature of your person, the glory of an omniscient, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent God who is be we stand on the shores of eternity, of the infinite, and we barely get our toes wet in the knowledge of you. You are as beyond us, as infinite, as beyond finite. And so we give you praise and honor and glory, and those are your your attributes that we can't relate to at all. And then we think about your character, righteousness, goodness, mercy, love, justice, hatred of sin and grace towards sinners. And we understand that those same infinite attributes are in the same way symbolized picture, exemplify your character and how you are in your person. And you are a person. Three persons, a God, incomprehensible, but no less a person. You became a man, but you are a person in eternity. Father loving the Son and the Holy Spirit. Son loving the Father and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit loving the Father and the Son in a, in a family, so to speak, the divine family. We acknowledge that you are what you say you are in your word because you've given us your Holy Spirit. We recognize today we would know nothing if it were not for you actively involved in those whom you have elected and called, those whom you have chosen and to whom you have given life. You've revived our soul, as it says in Psalm 119, three times from 53 to 60. You are a God of, of love and at a very, very high cost. We thank you for these things, and I pray that you would give understanding and wisdom as we consider some very important matters about your word. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This is episode 51, How to View God's Word. I'd like my hearers, listeners, to understand you know, no matter how you approach the Christian life, and if you're a Christian, if you want to be an overcoming Christian, if you want victory, like we mostly like success in, in life, um, you know, no matter what you apply, if the principles that we're going to look at today about how to view God's Word, about how to think about God's Word, 
I can tell you that you can't have real victory. I mean, you won't have real victory without these principles being applied. Psalm, Psalm 119, the, the writer of Psalm 119 understood a very important principle. You know, revival is coming back to life. Re, back, vival, and life, back to life. And he says three times between verses 153 and 160, revive me according to your word. Revive me according to, by the power of your word. Now, on the principle of, on the person of your word, the, the Holy Spirit as a person wrote the word and it becomes powerful. And, and it's living, we're told in, in, in Hebrews. And furthermore, he uses that this three times. One is according to your word. The, the other one, which is in verse 56, revive me according to your ordinances, which are basic principles written throughout the scriptural scriptures, uh, ordained by God, if you will. And then in verse 59, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. In these three principles, we have this picture that revival or the life of God is according to the word. So without the word, we don't have, you can't have revival. You, you can have the presence of the Holy Spirit and people can make issues of like it's some kind of personal, uh, and it has to be personal, but what's the means? Is the means by faith in the word of God? The written down, perfect and complete word of God? Or is it through some other means? Well, you got to watch out for those other means because they'll hurt you. And I want to look at that today. And let us go on in Psalm 119. And there are, you know, in Psalm 119, 176 verses, and every one points to the, the Word of God. Every one, 176 times. When God says something once, I mean, we really need to listen. But when He says it in one place, in 176 times, like, I think he's trying to make a point. The, the longest chapter in the Bible is about the Word of God. He, in, that, in that chapter, that psalm, he, he elevates his Word above his name. Really, the name of God is a, a picture of God. It it's, opens our eyes to who he is by the definition of that name. As in Elohim, just one. And in that name, God is strong. He's immense, infinitely strong. He's a plurality and a unity. You got the Trinity, and you have that He is faithful. The strong, faithful God. And so, in the Word, He's elevating who He is above the names, the name of God. And the greatest name, you know, is Lord. He's master. He's creator. I mean, just go on. All of that, seen in the names of God that expresses who he is as a person. And here he says, he elevates his name above it. So as we look at Psalm 119, and we're looking at the word, in Psalm 119, in verse 1, he begins this whole large chapter by saying, quote, blessed are those 
whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That's the word. The law of the Lord. The, the only blameless man is the one who walks according to God's word and, and not what he, he says God's word is, but in fact what God's word says. Now there's a big difference between those two, can be. Because we can say what the word is correctly, or we can do what the devil did in the garden and begin by saying, has God said? And start to accuse and incriminate God. And that can be done even with the right intent. Did you hear that? We can do things and we would say, so I would never do that. Well, you may not have the intention to do that. But let's, for a minute, just slow down and say that sometimes we do things we don't intend to do. I mean, think about if you're married, if not if in family relationships, just, just think about the times that you, you hurt someone or outside of family and you hurt someone and you didn't really intend to. I mean, you didn't really intend to at all. Okay, we can do that with the Word of God and we can do that with God. The final part of Psalm 119 concludes by saying, and this is verse 169, let my cry come before you, Lord. Now he's crying. Give me understanding according to your word. This is a cry. Generally, it's sorrow or a cry for help. There's something deep going on emotionally that would cause a cry. In an adult. So he's crying and he wants understanding according to the Word of God. He doesn't want his own understanding. He doesn't want understanding of men. He doesn't want human philosophies. He wants the Word of God. Verse 170 Let my pleading come before you. Save me according to your Word. Now he wants salvation, but again, he doesn't want it any other way but according to the Word of God. And here's where intentions and thoughts and thinking and human effort can just distort the Word of God, and maybe not intentionally. But his prayer here is that his salvation would be according to what God says and not what he might think or what he might feel or someone else might tell him. 172, let my tongue sing about your word. Singing usually is joyful and happy and we're praise, we're talking, but he says, for all your commandments are righteous and so he's singing according to the commandments that are right. And that's exactly what he's talking about there. He's talking about that God is right. And we can often be wrong, and we often are. And men are wrong. And men that we might feel like we should follow can be very wrong. But here, the emphasis is on, is on the Word of God. It's on God himself. 173, let your hand be ready to help me. For I have chosen your precepts. Why should God's hand be ready to help him in his own thinking? It's because of his valuing God's word. And by extension, he's valuing God. Now that's, if that's in the heart, question, can you value God without valuing his word? Need to answer that one correctly. Whenever we stray from the truth of the Word of God. And believe me, I hope by the end of this you're going to see that's a little bit easier than you might think. 174, I long for 
your salvation. Now there's a longing involved. Lord, Jehovah, the I am that I am. We, we long for salvation in a sinful and perverse world. The believers who've been brought into communion uh, with God long for that day when we're made complete and we're brought into the presence of God in heaven and we're never going to sin again. And he says, your law is my delight. Right here and right now, in this present world, this perverse generation, which it always is, as in the day of Pentecost, your law is my delight. Where's the delight in this world where disease and death and, and suffering and, and, and fighting and all that goes on in the world? Where's the delight? In the word of God. In the word of God. 176, last verse. The concluding part of this part of this chapter of the Bible says, I have wandered about like a lost sheep. Here's confession. You know, it's easy for even a believer, even someone who's trusting in Jesus Christ, it's easier than we should never underestimate how easy it is. I have wandered about like a lost sheep. I mean, we can get lost so easy. And, you know, but we know the way back. And the way back is the way through the good shepherd. You know, he's the good shepherd and he goes looking for that one sheep. He might have 99 that are in a good place, but he's going to go looking for that one because he's the good shepherd. And he'll search us out. And then he concludes with this. For I do not forget your commandments. Commandments. You know, these are like orders. These are the ones that the sinful people don't want to have any part of. But the believer has hidden the word in his heart. He knows the way back through the good shepherd. He knows that the blood of Christ cleanses away sin. And he goes looking for the good shepherd according to the commandments that he does not forget. When talking about Paul's gospel, which is God's gospel, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.15, it is a trustworthy statement. That's how he begins chapter 2 and 15. It is a trustworthy statement. Why? Because Paul is always in accord with God and his word. He's, he's inspired to write the word right here, and this is trustworthy. Now, he gives a reason because he says for or because if... He goes on and he says, if we died with him, we also will live with him. So there's a big if there. And death has to be part of the life equation. There is no life without death. He makes no assumption, but uses this word, if. And he's writing to these people at Galatia, and he's laid down some serious principles regarding uh, law and grace, can't go into all of that. But he's saying, if according to the word, if according to the word of God, death is required for life. Now that's not how he ends the quote, but he, he says, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. And then he begins by saying, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, because, you know, if they hate me, they're going to hate you. I mean, the way for the believer in this world is against the tide. I mean, it's easy to be hated. All you have to do is speak the truth. 
Oftentimes in our generation, people don't want to speak the truth because they don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. Well, that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said this, and he said it for a reason. Why are they going to hate us? Because we're mean-spirited, because we don't love them, because we don't care, because we don't want to see them go to heaven rather than hell? Of course, those things aren't true. So why would they hate us? Because we speak the truth. If we endure, we will reign. If we deny him, he goes on, he also will deny us. Now, this is something that a Christian needs to wrap his head around really, really hard. If we go contrary to the world and the deceptions of Satan, we're going to face persecution. If, however, we don't and we go along with the world, and in going along with the world for a time, if we deny him in doing so, which we do, he will also deny us. If, it says, we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, God never goes contrary to his word. And that's at that point when we're not going in accord with the word, we're now going contrary to God. I mean, think about it. I mean, God, I'm not, he's not saying here he doesn't love us anymore. He's not saying here that the blood doesn't apply anymore. He's not saying that forgiveness isn't taking place in the life of a believer. He's talking about in practice, in reality. I mean, can a Christian man sin? That's the, you know, First John chapter 1 makes it real clear. Yes. Matter of fact, if you say we have no sin, you make God a liar. And, and all of those verses. So going contrary is very possible. If we go contrary to his word, he will go contrary to us. He, he cannot go with us because he cannot deny himself. He can't deny his word. He's, he would never do that. And Paul is saying that right here. So, I'm saying this. If our doctrine, if we're believing teachings that are not so, and people are going to run right to what's really important, and that's true. You know, the important things are important, uh, and they are more important, say, than things that are not. Here's my problem with that, and this, I'm just going to make this statement. You can think about it. You know, at what point is something too small? At what point can something really small not become an, an exaggerated hindrance? I mean, look, if you're running a race and you got a pebble in your shoe, that's a really small thing. Maybe it's a really small pebble. But it may drive you nuts to where you have to stop and maybe lose the race if not finish at all. I mean, if it's a really long race, you're going 25 miles with a pebble in your shoe, yeah, you, you better consider that pebble. So am I saying that really tiny things can cause real disaster? Yes, they could. I'm not saying they always do. I'm not saying that we shouldn't pri prioritize little things over big things. I understand prioritizing what's important. But don't underestimate the little thing. Let's go on. So 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed of accurately handling the word of truth. And that, those verses that I read at first were verses 12 and 13 as a preliminary building up to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. In chapter 2 and verse 15, it's this that I just quoted. Let me quote it again. Be diligent to present yourself to prove to God as a worker who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. You know, to approach the word correctly and do what is being, we're being uh, told to do right here, to be diligent, to present ourselves approved to God, working to 
to handle accurately, accurately, not just slovenly in a lazy fashion to get the, to, and then we, we say, uh, oh yeah, you know, this is what the word says. You know, if you're not really studying, if you're not really putting in the time yourself, don't be too quick to know what you're talking about. Uh, there should be more doubt sometimes, I feel like. I know I should have had a whole lot more doubt in my young years now that I'm an older man. You know, I put work in. I'm not going to brag about it. You can't brag about it because the word is so deep. We could take a thousand years. We wouldn't plumb the depths of the word of God. There's, there's no place for anything but humility when approaching the Word of God. But to approach the Word of God correctly, a person must accept human depravity and the human condition of those who are even saved by faith. Why? Well, because, number one, we're so easily deceived. We're so easily prone to fleshly pride. We're so easily the necessity of striving the necessity for, of striving for humility is great because it's so easy to be deceived in, and according to fleshly pride. We need to understand the destructive force of intellectualism. Now, easy it is to get proud when studying the Word of God. I mean, it is incredibly, incredibly easy. It is idolatrous like all the other false religions, intellectualism, that is. Many a man, and I forget, someone, one of my brothers was telling me even just last week that he was considering seminary, and they made him buy a book. He took one course as far as I know, you know, and they made him buy a book, and, and in the, the book was like, I forget it was, How to Stay a Christian in Seminary, something like that. <laughs> I, I fully understand the concept. Why? Because people don't mean well, in seminary, professors, teachers, uh, uh, students. I mean, it isn't all about serving God. You know, what a man means to do well, uh, and we're back to intent right now, the devil can just twist and destroy every intention for good that we have. If you don't believe that, you, you don't know the devil. You haven't had a knockdown brawl yet or recognized the brawl that you've had and that it was Satan who's spoken about so much in the scriptures and goes, in, at least in America, and I'm not saying around the world, there's a lot more understanding of Satan around the world, but in this scientific, elevated, you know, new world life that we have, you know, we don't consider things that are as, 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 as ancient as spiritual warfare. Not like we should. So to accurately handle the word of truth, a person must understand hard work. A proper perspective of God's word, we must understand, is hard work to understand it. Why? Because it, it goes against everything we want to believe in the flesh. A spiritual man will gladly spend time in the word of God, he'll, just like he'll spend time in prayer. And he'll pray and he'll work through what it takes to humble ourselves and go to God. And that's what it takes. And that's why people have such a hard time with it. But it's the same thing with the Word of God. A pride man will just assume his way right through the Bible, and we know what that leads to. The Bible's supremacy over the human elements. To accurately handle the Word of truth, a person must, must, 
understand the supremacy over the human elements. What are the human elements? Well, a pastor. It's easy to, you know, you go, in, well, my, my, my pastor always preaches from the Word of God. How do you know that if you're not an expert at the Word yourself? Well, you, I can't be an expert. You know, I didn't, I'm not going to seminary. Well, that does not in any way alleviate responsibility. Blindly following a pastor, a teacher, a professor, what I'm doing right now, blindly following, you know, this guy's good, He's, this is going to be right. That is not what we're called to do. We're called to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe whatever I've commanded you. That is our responsibility. It's our responsibility to know the truth for ourselves. So as we're hearing sermons, and perhaps those sermons are blessing us, we have to verify. To some extent, we have to verify is this true, and not just go in with the scriptures with a preconceived idea. Well, this is what he said, and so this is probably right, and so I'm going to try to prove it. That's not the way we attack the Word of God. That's not the way we approach the Word of God. But there's pastors, and there's teachers, and there's seminary professors and all of those have to be recognized what they are, not the Word of God. Some men can be awesome at the time that they've spent and the humility that they've applied and the prayer time given in order to properly um, explain what God means by what he says. But to rest in them, no good. Fourthly, denominations. I mean, I see people, you know, reading the books that come out of the denominations. And to be quite honest with you, Sometimes it makes me want to cry. I mean, it makes me want to, it's like, are you following the scriptures? And they talk about the book like this is the greatest thing in the world uh, when it's not the Bible. I mean, they use the Bible and they could be teaching it well, but I've seen and heard things come out of those books that I know are not all the way true, okay? And then there's human feelings. And I always go back in my mind to a person I was having a discussion with and like for an hour, and during that course of that conversation, it was a good conversation, but I kept asking him, how do you know? And he kept saying, I don't know, I just know. You know, you don't just know. I mean, when God opens our eyes, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, you know, and he expands our, our minds, yes, you know, because it's become clear through study. But you don't just know, you pick up the word, and you just feel it. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. The Bible is made of words, and the proper use of grammar is vitally important to understand. You know, you have to understand the subject and the verb and the object, and you have to understand adjectives and adverbs and syntax and how they relate to one another. I mean, how can you understand what someone's writing if you don't get how writing works? I mean, let's just be practical for a minute. I mean, having the Holy Spirit and having him give you inspiration is every bit as important as this. But if you're going to be lazy and not put in any work, let me ask you, why should God um, honor lazy? You think God honors lazy? I mean, have you read Proverbs? You know, you know like a man swinging on a hinge. You know, it's just uh, a door. You know, it's just God's not impressed with lazy people. He, he doesn't want it. He tells us not to be That's disobedience, really. That's nothing diligent about being lazy. So to ignore, you know, definitions of words, the original languages, you know, to ignore these things and be lazy does, does not impress God. And we're not looking to impress God. We can't impress God. But we, we need the blessing. And don't think the blessing comes with 
out being a, a worker that doesn't need to be ashamed. To accurately understand the word, a person must understand divine revelation. I'm going to say something to be a little complicated. Follow me through as hard as you can. Uh, Isaac Newton, Sir Isaac Newton, once said, I have, and I quote, I have a fundamental belief in the Bible as the Word of God, written by those who were inspired. I study the Bible daily. Daily. Now, this is a guy like in this 21st century where people are so goal-oriented and they don't take time for anything, and they're just focused. You know, how could he take the time to study the Bible every day, this genius, you know, who could really study the stars and just understand things that were far beyond his time. Isaac Newton, right? He studied the Bible every day. This is, this, now, this quote is the main quote, but I just want you to understand the kind of Christian man that Sir Isaac Newton was, that he would study the Bible every day. Now, that's not the average Catholic, okay? I'm not criticizing all Catholics, but I'm, I'm being a Catholic, all the time I was a Catholic, never looked hardly at the Bible, except when I listened to Billy Graham and got saved, and then I picked it up. No, but in, in uh, the second quote is this, and I quote, a man may imagine things that are false. Now, that's imagination. You can imagine things that are false, but he can only understand things that are true. You can make all things up in your mind, but you can't understand things if they're not true. This is what Newton is saying. And then he goes on and says, for if the things are false, the comprehension of them is not understanding. So he's defining understanding here by comprehending a th an idea. So let's look at the idea that men are saved by grace. And I'm going to go into this a little bit in a minute, but just to give you an idea right here from this statement, what Newton is saying, if grace is, if a man is saved by grace, then that means God is doing something that the man would never do or could ever do. That's what it is. That's what grace is. You, don't, you can't earn it. You don't deserve it. So that man who was a sinner, and in that sin is wicked and hates God, if the man is in that position and God saves him by grace, the man has nothing to do with it. You can't, a person, what Newton is saying here, is a person cannot, understand the concept of grace which is actually true if he makes up something contrary to that which is false. Let me say it another way. So if he says man is saved by works <laughs> which a man cannot be because God says he cannot be and if God says he cannot be he can't. God doesn't lie and he's not like us. He knows everything. And so when he says something, it's true. And so when God says man can't be saved by works, and he proved that by giving us the law that we can't keep in all of us, all you have to do is look at it and see we can't. But if a man, and the, religion, the religions of the world, by the way, try to prove that they can be saved by, they come up with all kinds of theories and how they can work their way to heaven and all these philosophies, you can't comprehend it. You can't make sense out of it. And if a person believes something like you can work your way to heaven, just try to talk to somebody. Try to talk to a Jehovah Witness. And if you're out there and you're a Jehovah Witness, I'm not trying, you know, to say that you're, that, you know, something that would be hurtful. I'm merely saying, 
over 50, almost 50 years, I've talked to many, many Jehovah Witnesses, and this becomes very clear to me that while they're working their way to heaven, they do not comprehend what they're talking about. And it's not just them. It's everything, anything that's false. Divine revelation. Let's consider for a minute what it is not and what it is. From 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. What it is not. And even if our gospel, quote, verse 3, and even if our gospel, Paul says, is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God, small g of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What is it not? Its, it's revelation is veiled. It's not unveiled. Uh, revelation is veiled to the unbelieving. So what it's not, divine revelation is, is not unveiled. It is unveiled. But to the blind, to the lost, to those who are under the influence of the devil, it is veiled. So there is no revelation. They're blind and cannot see or understand in their mind. That's what it says. God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see. They're blind. They might not see the light. The light that reveals revelation. It's obstructed. The gospel's obstructed. The glory of Christ is obstructed to everyone who believes something contrary to the word of God. And so the, he continues. The image of God is obstructed. To the person whose mind has been enlightened, enlightened, I'm sorry, to the person whose mind has been enlightened, not by self-made conviction, but through God, such a person can clearly see the error of those not enlightened. Now that's a hard statement. That goes so contrary to our present culture that says to us, you know, we're all equals and every man you know, can see as he sees and, and understand and everyone has a right to their own understanding to make a statement like I just did, which happens to be true, to the person whose mind has been enlightened. And the Bible talks an awful lot about that, that enlightening. It talks about the veil being removed. It talks about Moses who was the friend of God, and he would go into the presence of God, and it was, it was so brilliant that it was remained on his face for a while. And they had to put a veil because they didn't want to see the glory diminishing. It would be a wrong picture for God because his glory doesn't diminish. But he had it all over his face. You think that Moses, for 40 years in the wilderness, walking with God, being in his presence, talking like a friend, and you can read some of those, like in Exodus and Numbers, He's talking to God like a friend and then he looks at the children of Israel and he didn't get some of the things that they were like in blinded and dark. And so if Moses said, you know, I, I, I've talked with God a few times. I know what I'm talking about. And what would the Israelites say? Who are you? And they'd want to stone him and kill him. And they did that numerous times. Why? Because who's got the right? Well, who's, who's Moses think he is? Well, he was a man that God said was a friend. And many, many times spoken of Moses in the, in the scriptures that say he was the friend of God. He was the servant of God. So he's a servant and a friend and he walks in the light of God and he doesn't understand when uh, other men are in darkness. Even believers. Now here's where it really gets really iffy. 
Here's where it becomes a real problem. Uh, is when one Christian talks to another Christian and tries to tell him you're not in the light on this particular subject or topic that we're talking about. Indignant. It really becomes stressful. Who are you to tell me? I mean, how is your conviction? Let me tell you where this... Let's, let's look at the rest of this verse and then we'll end up in the right place. For the person to see the unobstructed gospel, a, mu- a person must... Verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves with Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus Christ. There's the humility. We don't preach ourselves. The person who says, I see, and I need to help you with your not being able to see, if he's speaking for Christ and if he's pointing to Christ and if he's elevating Christ and not himself, that person should not be, you know, point an evil finger at that person and say, this is a nasty person because of who he thinks he is. That's, that's not godly. For God, in verse 6, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's light shining in the darkness, in the human heart. It lights up the knowledge, it gives God glory, and it's all in the face of Christ. This person may see much more than other Christians see. Why? Because of grace, because of the Holy Spirit, because of his attentiveness to the Word of God. So before you argue with someone, make sure that you're, how, how much time you're spending in the Word, how much time you're spending, pr- spending praying, and if you're doing due diligence and the lights go on, and if God chastens you because of sin and the lights go on, you know, when the lights go on, that's different. It's a humbling experience, actually. It's the only way it's been for me. I mean, like the, like the disciples. I mean, they, they denied Christ. That's when the lights went on. When all of those lessons from Jesus impacted them like a serious punch in the heart, having denied Christ, that's when the lights went on. There's no pride there. But it, it can sound like pride. I mean, that's why the Jews followed uh, Paul from town to town, because he was a Pharisee, and now he's denying all of that. The Bible wrongly interpreted is not revelation, it is deception. The Bible wrongly interpreted is not revelation, it is deception. The depravity of the times of the judges was enormous. I'm not going to spend the time to go into details, but you know the concluding story is about a Levite who had a, uh, a concubine who's not really a wife, he's in disobedience, and the concubine gets raped and killed and then he cuts her up in 12 pieces and sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, is this dark time or not? I mean, this is a horrendous story. And then as a result of that, an entire tri- tribe, Benjamin, gets wiped out. I mean, this is horrendous. This is, this is not life as it's meant to be. I mean, this is life as, as it's meant not to be. And then the concluding verse in chapter 21 and 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. When there's no king in Israel, it's like God's not God of the word. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 
Yeah, everybody's got an interpretation and everybody's got an understanding and everybody knows what they know and you can't tell me any different and there's all this division in the church and God says, you know, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples by the love you have one for another. We can't even get along. We can't even agree. I'm not saying these things to criticize the church. I'm saying these things because Jesus deserves better. Jesus deserves every one of his children to be so serious about the word that we wind up agreeing with one another. You think that's impossible? If you think that's impossible, I want you to right now question your faith. Is it impossible for us? Okay. How about God? Is God involved in our lives or are we just walking in the flesh? Study uh, Ephesians chapter, Galatians, I'm sorry, Galatians chapter 4. Listen to some sermons by MacArthur. See how he brings that out in the light of four Think verses 25 and following. See, see how Paul argues against life in the flesh to people who were espousing to be Christian, and some probably were. To accurately understand the word, a person must be reasonable. Reasonable. You know, let's define reason. A well-reasoned argument must make sense. Reason makes sense. My father, for so many years, was, you know, sixth grade uh, uh, graduate, you know, went through the Depression, the World War, you know, didn't have all the opportunities everybody gets today, um, was a faithful family man, and one of the wisest men I've ever, I've ever met. I mean, I've met a lot of PhDs, and I got to tell you, my father killed them in wisdom. Maybe not in the facts of life and the understanding, and maybe he couldn't quote certain uh, philosophers and poets, but you know what? He was a wise man. Not because he was my father, because he, ju- he just was. I know the word of God now, and I, I know that he was a wise man. If evolution, and now here it's got to be make sense, if evolution is allowed to stand alone, as told by atheistic inventor Charles Darwin, and not be uh, changed by some Christian people who want to turn it into something other than it was meant to be, which is atheistic. Basically what he's saying is nothing created everything or itself. Everything created itself. Now Aristotle said that was unreasonable. Aristotle said A and non-A cannot be at the same time and in the same relationship. Basically you can't create yourself. You can't not exist and then become. And that's what where you start with evolution. A big bang. Okay, where'd the power come for the bang? Where did the energy come from, the bang, the matter? Where, where did it come from? You can't go from nothing to something unless you, there's an eternal God who's able to do that. And he's existed before. He's always existed. He's eternal. Uh, creation is not anything like evolution. Now, people want to quote, like they want to say evolution because, I don't know, they want to think they're smart in their own head. God said that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And you know what? He made everything as it is. There was no process involved. He made a dog a dog. A dog begets a dog. And a cat begets a cat. And a turtle begets a turtle. And that's the way it's always been. There's no evolutionary process. There's no evidence. I'm not going to go into the details. I read a lot of books on that. And you know, really good scientists agree that evolution is unreasonable. It doesn't make sense. To make sense, an argument must not be contradictory. 
This is, I'm not, this is not scripture. I'm just talking about reason right now. Because a person who approaches the scripture needs to be reasonable, believe it or not. And a Holy Spirit-filled person will be reasonable. So you're out there now, and have you seen a few good men? You know, if you've seen a good man, and most people have, you know, there's the scene between William Santiago and Colonel Jessup. And, you know, Santiago was to be transferred off the base because he was in grave danger. But, you know, Tom Cruise is, is, talk, is, is sent, giving the argument, but if your orders are always obeyed, he should not have been in any danger at all. He contradicted himself. The judge knew it. He wanted an answer. And then he tries to backtrack, and he wouldn't let him backtrack. But in a contradiction, there's no reason. It doesn't make sense. And there are doctrines upon doctrines upon doctrines, which people, you know, we don't have to argue about. It's not a big deal, this or that. But is it reasonable? I mean, is it reasonable that, uh, I don't even want to go in. This is not about any particular doctrine. You know, it's, it's just the question is, is it reasonable? Is it reasonable to say that God is sovereign in everything except who is saved? I mean, he can't help who's not going to be saved because they have so, so-called free will. I'm just asking. I'm not going into a debate on this subject. Obviously, I can't. I'm the only one talking. But uh, the point is, is it reasonable? Just answer that question, not the question. Don't go arguing into the doctrine. Just say, is it reasonable to say that God is sovereign, but he's not sovereign over everything? (laughs) Are we defining sovereignty correctly? If you're not sovereign over everything, you're not sovereign over whatever you're not sovereign over. You're not sovereign. So God's not sovereign. You know, is God sovereign? Yes, I'm, oh, yeah, I believe God's sovereign. Is he sovereign over salvation? Well, no. Okay, so he's not sovereign. I'm just talking about reasonability. Is it reasonable to say that the church does not go through any part of the tribulation? And then I got a lot of people mad at me here. But people get saved during the tribulation. I mean, who loses their heads during the tribulation? Who uh, won't take the mark of the beast and they give up their life? for Christ in the tribulation. Well, the the church is taken out and they get saved after. So after they get saved during the tribulation, uh, are those people part of the church? Well, you know, it's a different name. Wait a minute. Are they saved under the blood? Are they saved through the gospel? So those people aren't the church, but they are getting killed for Christ and they're shedding their blood. I'm just saying, I'm not arguing whether people do or not. Right? I'm just asking for, is it reasonable? Isn't it reasonable to say that people who get saved during this age of grace, oh no, it's discontinued. Really? Did anybody ever get saved other than through grace? Because my Bible, they didn't. I mean, the gospel, the, the New Testament preachers and pastors, they were preaching from the Old Testament, and you know what? They were preaching grace. Well, if they're looking at Abraham or, or David or any of the Joseph, you know, they're looking at the patriarchs, they're looking at anybody, they're preaching grace. Yeah, that's all you can preach. It, it's, it's all grace. Is it reasonable that Old Testament saints were saved in some way other than New Testament saints? Here's a, even a worse one. Is it reasonable that New Testament saints are saved without regeneration? Is it reasonable? That's not reasonable. 
You're only saved if you're born again. You have to be regenerate. Uh, Nicodemus got hit with, by, by Jesus himself who said, you know what, you're, you're the teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? Is it reasonable that Old Testament saints are saved without regeneration? Could Moses really stand on the top of a mountain and say to God, look, blot me out, but don't start over with me. These are your people. It's going to look bad on your name. You know, you destroyed Egypt, and you can't get them into the promised land. Don't do this thing. And he's doing that without a regenerated heart. This is a wicked man. Like, we're all born wicked. You know, he's brought up as a, a son of Pharaoh. He's got everything under his, under his feet. He can take charge like a Pharaoh would. And he walks away, and he goes into the desert with the Israelites. And he did this in the flesh as a sick, sin-sick, wicked sinner. I mean, is that reasonable? <laughs> you know, we have to stop and we have to think and we have to take our arguments to their logical conclusion. Does this thing work itself out correctly? When you take a person and you take them to its logical conclusion, and then they say, and they deny it, and they stick to what they believe, we can conclude, at least for now, maybe it'll change in the next day. Maybe God will do something if we pray. But when you stick to something that's unreasonable, we can conclude the person is being unreasonable. There is no reason... <laughs> good reason to be unreasonable with the Word of God because we're not trying to prove what we think or what we say. We're not preaching ourselves but Christ. What we want is to take the Word of God and let it say what it says. Don't let prejudice and sin and our own feelings and our denominations and our ties take us to place a place we should not go. When I went to Bible school, I went there as a person who believed in the sovereignty of God in salvation. I went there as a person who, who understood that I could not possibly save myself. I went there um, believing in my heart of hearts that if it were not for the grace of God, there is no way that I would ever have chosen Christ. Um, and then I was taught by some missionaries, ex-missionaries who had come home and one's father had died. He took over the school. Godliest man, a godly man like few that I've met in my lifetime. And that was back in the late 70s. I mean, he was just godly, you know? Just do the right thing. Serious person. You could have fun with him and laugh, but he was, he was serious about Christianity, about Christ, about the gospel. And he was not teaching the sovereignty of God as I now understand the Bible to say. And I went from uh, just not knowing the Bible well, but knowing it enough and having had the, the conversion I did and face my sin as I did. And even after, you know, after falling, coming to a, a deep understanding of God and his grace. And that understanding that for by grace you're saved through faith and not of yourselves it is a gift of work, a, a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And that gift, and it just made it 
I'd open my eyes. And my devotion to men who I respected more than myself closed my eyes and made me believe and see something that wasn't biblical and I was basically denied God and I paid for it for, I don't know, 10 or more years. And during that time, I paid for it with decisions I made, with attitudes I held. Uh, it just, it ruined me. It ruined me. And then I, I, I couldn't live with it anymore and I, I got confronted by you know, a couple of people and uh, what was in the depth of my heart, which I would argue with people eventually, if you, if you nailed me down and you started talking free will, I would eventually bend and say, free will is an illusion. And even with a, a shallow understanding, before I had you know, read um, more scholarly men, more biblically alert men, um, than even the missionaries, as godly as they were, but biblically alert, one God had opened their minds um, dur- to to see what what the Bible says about grace and what it means, and to take that meaning of the Scripture and 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 make it something that lit up my heart and my soul. If you don't have the meaning of Scripture, you don't have the revelation. Get that? You can think you do. You can be convinced that you do. You can have the deepest conviction that this is what the Bible says. But the other person who has a different understanding that you do and is saying, um, brother, you're, you're wrong here, and he's reasoning with you out of the scripture, the truth, only one is right. One has revelation and the other one is deceived. So my question to you, if you're listening to this, obviously you're listening to it if you're hearing it, is, are you in the truth? Are you in the revelation of God? Or are you deceived? And you have to go through all the doctrines you know, all the teachings that you know, and you have to ask yourself, am I deceived? Really, ask yourself. I mean, mean it. You have to mean it. Or... Has my mind been expanded to know what do I think, just think I know? I mean, I know the arguments. I'm not asking you if you know the arguments. I'm asking you if you're walking in revelation, meaning that the Word of God means what you think it does. Because if it doesn't, then you're denying Christ. You're denying the gospel, and you're denying the Word of God. See, if we get serious about this subject... And we understood that when we're wrong about a certain teaching, and some of those teachings can be very serious, then we're heretics. You hear that? Oh, you can't word or use a word like that. I can use a word like that because that's what it means. It's heresy. We're not believing according to the orthodox beliefs of the Bible. And orthodox meaning what's settled and known as Scripture. It's what scripture means. If you're not saying what scripture means, you could be propagating heresy, whether you realize it or not, whether or not you intend to do that. Look, God is the judge, not me. I don't know who I'm even talking to. But as judge, he will will judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And he will know whether we really didn't intend to do that or not. 
And he's, he's a judge. And so it either will go up in flames or it won't. And the emptiness that is gonna, we're going to be judged for, not sin, it can't be judged twice and it was judged on cross. But if we denied Christ and we're a Christian and it's empty and it's burned up, because no matter what the intention were, we were actually propagating a heresy. That's going to be lost. It's not going to be well done, good and faithful servant, for you or for me. So we need to be serious about this. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you have made clear in so many ways, in so many different ways in the scripture, how serious these things are. One way is through the New Testament writers, including our Lord Jesus Christ, not as a writer, but as inspiring the word, that things are said in, a, in almost a militant, military fashion sometimes in the New Testament. We're called to be patient and kind and loving and just loving toward people. But the New Testament sometimes is it's much harder than that. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be. And the sarcasm that pours out of Paul at times. Have you, have you not read Jesus coming out of his lips? Things that just are hard. Why? Because of the importance of it. How can something that can send someone to hell be taken lightly because if we sound like we're loving, that means we are. How can we stand by and let a person run into a burning building? But as long as we have a smile on our face, that means we love the person. Rather than tackling them to the ground and saying, what are you doing? Do you not realize this burning is this building is burning? I mean, I think if I was running into a burning building and didn't realize it, I would want someone to tackle me to the ground. I know I would. Sometimes I wish I could go back in history and give myself a real talking to. Lord, I pray that you would take this word and these thoughts and this philosophy and reasoning but especially your word, and apply it to the hearts of the people who hear this, and may they stop and consider. In Jesus' name, amen.